Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, today we were to have interviewed Tony Horwitz about his uh, fascinating, wonderful new book, Spying on the South, an Odyssey Across the American Divide. Uh, however, uh, he won't be able to appear on the program. We learned yesterday the sad news uh, that he uh, died yesterday. I'm quoting briefly here from the Vineyard Gazette, talking about Martha's Vineyard. The West Tisbury author and historian Tony Horwitz died suddenly in Washington, D.C. yesterday. His wife, Geraldine Brooks, confirmed Mr. Horwitz was 60. He'd been on tour for his new book, Spying on the South. He was a longtime journalist and Pulitzer Prize winner who wrote acclaimed historical nonfiction, including the best-selling Confederates in the Attic and Midnight Rise. He lived year-round in West Tisbury, was scheduled to appear in Martha's Vineyard Book Festival this summer, among other things, and he's survived by his wife and two sons. Arrangements uh, are incomplete at this time, so our prayers go out to uh, Mr. Horwitz's uh, family. Uh, we are going to uh, have an encore presentation today of a very interesting uh, interview from uh, February. This program is part of the Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative, administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils in partnership with the Pulitzer Prizes Board for a collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and the Salt Lake City Library. The initiative seeks to deepen the public's knowledge and appreciation of the vital connections between democracy, the humanities, journalism, and an informed citizenry. The Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative is supported by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Taim Bajess is winner of the 2017 Pulitzer Prize for Poetry for his book, Olio. With ambitious manipulations of poetic forms, he presents the sweat and story behind America's blues, work songs, and church hymns. Part fact, part fiction, his much-anticipated second book weaves sonnet, song, and narrative to examine the lives of mostly unrecorded African-American performers directly before and after the Civil War up to World War I. Olio is an effort to understand how they met, resisted, complicated, co-opted, and sometimes defeated attempts to minstrelize them. Taimba Jess is author previously of Lead Belly, and Lead Belly was winner of the 2004 National Poetry Series, Library Journal, and Black Issues Book Review, both named it to one of the best poetry books of 2005, won other awards as well. This book, Olio, uh, won, as I mentioned, the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry, the Annisfield Wolf Book Award for Poetry, Book Award for Poetry for Society of Midland Authors, and other prizes as well. And Taimba Jess is a poetry and fiction editor of African American Review and associate professor of English at College of Staten Island. It's a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thank you. Good to be here, Utah. Uh, so uh, I want to uh, jump in here. Olio, uh, a fascinating book. Ambitious book uh, as well. We'll we get into talking about this. Uh, what drew you to these African American performers uh, during this era? Well, um, my first book was about Lead Belly, uh, the uh, the guitarist who knew about five hundred folk songs off the top of his head. And after I finished that book, um, I became curious about the sounds that inspired him the sounds of uh, black musicians that were uh, working in the late part of the 19th century, right after the Civil War, and uh, up until the time of uh, the dawn of uh, recording, of the recording age, which is be about the jazz age. So I became very curious about uh, the origins of black sound and the origins of uh, American sound, and who were the performers that were making that sound, and 
and that interest spread uh, not just to musicians, but also eventually to other performers, such as comedians. And there's a sculptor in the book. There's an opera singer uh, in the book. Um, uh, there's uh, two sisters that were in a in freak shows together. So there's. I became curious about uh, the the kind of uh, missing. Uh, histories, the obscured histories uh, before the age of recording that were black folks trying to make a life out of uh, their creative endeavors against the backdrop of the minstrel show. Hmm. Well, talk about minstrel show. This uh, this was the popular entertainment of, of the era, right? Yes, it was. It was the uh, main entertainment of uh, 19th century and, and really up into early 20th century. Uh, that was that was the main thing. It was it was the minstrel show. Uh, the minstrel show was started in the uh, early part of the 19th century by white performers putting on blackface. That means uh, that means burning cork and then taking the ashes, putting them in uh, in grease and spreading it over their faces uh, in order to make uh, grotesque imagery of black people. And it's uh, this minstrel show was not just a form of entertainment; it was really a form of psychological warfare that was uh, uh, perpetuated in order to um, in order to enforce the dogma of white supremacy. So uh, you could go and get entertained and get your white supremacist beliefs uh, reaffirmed every time you went into the theater to see a minstrel show. Um, as a matter of fact, the very first character of the minstrel show was called Jim Crow. Mm. And Jim Crow, as you know, was the name of the laws of segregation that were uh, throughout this country up until really the, well, they were legal until the year I was born, 1965. So um, the, the minstrel show was a form of entertainment, a form of of uh, of suppression and a form of belittlement that uh, that went through. As a matter of fact, if you remember the very first talking movie was the jazz singer with Al Jolson, who was in blackface, and uh, that was in the year 1927, if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. that that came out. And, and the, the vestiges of the minstrel show have. Uh, have continued to appear throughout our culture and throughout our political dialogue, as you can, as you well know, about the uh, about uh, government officials in the state of Virginia. Uh, there was a there was a Secretary of State in the state of Florida that just had to step down after appearing in blackface. So the minstrel show is not is a 19th century phenomena that uh, still echoes throughout the 20th and 21st centuries. Yeah, I was I was going to ask you about the you know it comes down to present day and it's been in the headlines. Uh, what uh, maybe we forget or, or haven't known what what the minstrel shows were were all about? As you said, you know, um, at least a, a big part of it was was reinforcing the white supremacy. Uh, what do you think about the, the the current you know the current brouhaha with with blackface? Some people are supporting it, saying, "Hey, you know, it's." Not that big a deal. Well, it is a big deal. It is a big deal in that it needs to be addressed. It needs to be um, needs to be discussed. It needs to be um, and there needs to be a dialogue 
about it that discusses the origins of the, uh, particularly, and in, in, in you're talking about blackface and, and its use by white folks in various uh, areas of, of, you know, in their parties or whatever their celebrations may be. Um, it is, it is, um, it is, in fact, a vestige of uh, a terrible and uh, degrading and uh, and uh, and and um, it's a, a, a part of our history that we need to address. That uh, that folks who are who are hopefully in a few generations we won't have people going to parties dressing up in blackface, etc or any other kind of uh, racial uh, caricature that of, uh, of, of a group that, uh, that demeans them. Mm. So I think it's still definitely an issue, um, and I think it's something that, that, that people need to, need to address if they have done it in their past or if they're doing it today. And I, I think uh, maybe we sometimes, I don't know if it's forget, but we, we shove it to the background, right, the, the fact that for decades— after the Civil War, uh, there was terrorism. Uh, Generations. No, yeah, no, no other word for it. Um, and I, I was particularly struck by, um, in, in the book, it's called the Dunbar-Booker Double Shovel. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Paul Lawrence Dunbar meets Booker uh, Talifara, Washington. Washington, yeah. And uh, I, I don't know, maybe maybe be appropriate to have you read some of this, uh, if, if, if that's okay. Um, yeah. Yeah, um, before before I would begin to read those uh, that particular poem, I have to point out that um, there's 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 a concept in the book that uh, has to do with contrapuntal poems. Okay, and so contrapuntal poems are poems that if you if you will, the, the listener will imagine a uh, a block of text or a series of lines going down one side of the page with a split in the middle, and then another block of text going down the other side of the page. And those blocks of text are both poems. They read independently. However, when read from left to right, they read as one poem. Okay? So um, throughout the book, there are many poems. There's some of these poems are sonnets. Some of these poems are huzzles. That's an Indo-Arabic form that's roughly a thousand years old. The poem that you're referring to is uh, Booker T. and uh, and uh, Dunbar is a golden shovel. And along, and it's, it's really difficult to kind of explain what's happening here. But essentially, you read down. You can read down the the page from one column all the way across to the other other column. And every line reads not only to the line to, to its left and its right, but also to the line above it, below it, diagonal to it, going up and down. So in effect, what you have is, uh, is a uh, Euclidean geometrical uh, phenomenon called a flat torus, T-O-R-U-S, that can be taken out of the book. I mean, there's, these, there's forms that fold out of the fold out of the book and also are perforated for you to tear out of the book and manipulate into various forms, taking it from a two-dimensional form into a three-dimensional form, taking it from a two-dimensional plane 
into a three-dimensional cylinder going in, in multiple directions, and then from a cylinder into what is a torus. A torus is essentially the same thing that many of your r- readers are riding on right now. That's the, the shape of a tire, or perhaps a donut that they ate for breakfast. And it's a poem that reads around and around in, inside of the, poem, of, the, of the tire, backwards and forwards, around and around on the outside of the, of the tire, backwards and forwards, and from the inside to the outside of that of that Taurus. And finally, those, those poems, when, uh, when taken and given one twist, one half a twist, form into a Mobius strip, a paradox, which is, the, which is a, a, a kind of metaphor for the, uh, the difficulties of the, and, and, the, and the kind of twisting of, uh, of persona and uh, character that the speakers in the poems had to perform in order to preserve their dignity, their lives, in order, and in order to uh, attain the, uh, the various things that they attained in their lives. So I, so I could read it, but it's much more complicated. And I, it was yes, probably better yes. for the purposes of your listening. If I were to read something a little bit simpler, yes, uh, yeah. Why don't you, why don't you do that, and then we can uh, we can. Uh, t- but before we leave that and uh, have you read something simpler, you you actually do encourage people to tear these perforated yes. pages out of the book and, and manipulate them. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, when I go out and I do a reading, I <laughs> I tear a page out of the book, uh, you know, in front of the audience, and I perform these uh, these this this light paper engineering in front of every audience that I appear in front of. Because it is my wish for the, uh, for the reader to deconstruct the book in order to reconstruct the people in the book. In, order, in other words, to deconstruct the received text in order to reconstruct and rediscover the voices of the people in the text. Mm, yeah, yeah, very, very interesting experience. It's, it's. Uh, I imagine it takes a, a beat for people to actually do that, right? Because, because we're, because <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. otherwise well, that, you don't, you don't tear pages out of books. But uh. right, well, that's that's the that's the point. And the other point of the book is that it's, it's it is about, you know, I have I have a, a an excellent publisher. I have to say, Wave Publishing did a fantastic, um, a job on the book. The, the pages. There's four of them that do this, that they tear out the, of the book very easily. As a matter of fact, I would encourage you, Tom, to do so right now and see for yourself. They tear out of the book very easily. Okay, I'm going, um, to, I'm going to do the, this the right ones now. That, okay. The ones that fold out are the ones yeah. that, if you look at the scene, you right. can see that they're perfectly. Am I correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. There you go. All right. So they tear out the book very easily. Yes, yes, it did. All right, I've got it in my hand. There you go. Uh, I have a radio host from. (laughs) I've never met Tom, have I? Never have. No. There you go. And it did any tears in the actual uh, actual poem? No, 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 not at all. Now have a a double page. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they tear out the book very easily, and in the back of the book, there is an index which explains how these these poems go through this light paper engineering. There's actual pictures which explain how these, how these poems can be manipulated. Yeah, I saw that. But yeah, it's, not just, yeah. it's not just to perform 
a kind of trick, so to speak. Mm-hmm. It is really in order to deep, more deeply understand the uh, the kind of uh, psychological um, uh, uh, permutations that these folks had to go through in order to uh, in order to perform their art at the highest level. Okay. Uh, yeah, I want to I want to talk about that, but uh, just to, before we leave this this uh, Dunbar Booker uh, uh, double shovel. Uh, so yeah. you have the poem that can be manipulated in all those ways that you said on the back of the page. This is very interesting. Black victims mm-hmm. of lynchings per one hundred thousand blacks per, yeah. per state, and then the reasons given for black lynchings. I, w- I was very struck. These are actual reasons I assume given for black lynchings: acting suspiciously, demanding yeah. respect, indolence. These are three yeah. reasons given for for killing killing a person. This is that's true, and that that is those are not um, those are not uh, uh, reasons that I made up. I found that document. That's an actual historical document that I really just basically um, uh, took and I put it in the book in order to inform the the poem on the other side of the, of. Of the page, because but the, the idea is that you know uh, Booker T. Washington, of course, was. I guess you could you could consider Booker T. Washington um, uh, pretty much the first black president, so to speak. Uh, he was he was uh, a very powerful um, figure, the head of Tuskegee Institute. Um, he had many 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 uh, black government positions were um, appointed through him. Um, but at the same time, he had to contend with the nadir of race relations in the United States. He had to uh, contend with uh, with lynchings happening all around him, all throughout the, the country. And at the same and and, and at the same time, uh, kind of downplay this kind of racial uh, animosity and hatred in order to in order for him to successfully create. Tuskegee University. Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Paul Lawrence Dunbar was a was an amazing poet who did many poems beyond the poems that are most uh, that are, of his that are most popular or that were most popular of his at the time that were in deep vernacular. <clears throat> and um, actually, if you look at the if you look at the poem, Tom, and you see that there's an epigraph on the on the previous page, which is taken from um, Paul Lawrence. Dunbar's uh, uh, poetry from the uh, we, the poem "We Wear the Mask." It says, "We wear the mask that grins and lies. It hides our cheeks and shades our eyes. This debt we pay to human guile. With torn and bleeding hearts, we smile." And if you look down, if you look down the at the last word of every line on that poem, Tom, in each column, you will see that quote from that that the, that phrase from the poem going down the side of the poem. Do you see that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that yeah. is that is the properties of a golden shovel. And, and so the poem is performing the properties of a golden shovel, which is a, a, a poem that is a poetic form that is taken from a poem, an amazing poem by uh, Gwendolyn Brooks, and also uh, really kind of transformed into another form by another poet, a, a, a contemporary American poet named Terrence Hayes. 
So it's taking all of those elements and putting it into this this kind of uh, uh, structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about this. You, you've made reference to this. I want to, after the break, uh, take this up. There were there were black performers, right, in, in minstrels, right, or, or at least they. Yes, they were. Uh, yeah, and and so, um, you know, performing these caricatures, but mm-hmm. but some of them, I believe, were at least tried and were able to at least at least in some ways uh, transcend the, the form. Uh, I want to talk about that mm-hmm. and much more. Uh, we're talking with uh, Taimba Jess. He's winner of the 2017 uh, Pulitzer Prize for Poetry for his book Olio. I'll talk about the title as well when we come back. Uh, more following this. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Salt Lake City Weekly, a Utah news source since 1984, covering news, politics, music, and more in Salt Lake City and beyond. Available weekly at 1,800 locations across the Wasatch Front or online at cityweekly.net. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music, from ragtime to bop, from Havana to Logan, Utah. Tune in for a bit of history, commentary, the occasional interview, and of course, all that jazz. Jazz Time, Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. Utah Public Radio would like to thank Palmer Home Furnishings and Mountain Ridge Furniture for becoming our newest sponsors. For more information on how you can become a sponsor, email debbie.andrew at usu.edu. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to download our UPR app so you can listen anywhere. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in February of this year. This program is part of the Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative, administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils in partnership with the Pulitzer Prizes Board for a collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and the Salt Lake City Library. The initiative seeks to deepen the public's knowledge and appreciation of the vital connections between democracy, the humanities, journalism, and an informed citizenry. The Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative is supported by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we're talking with Taimba Jess. He is winner of the 2017 Pulitzer Prize for Poetry for his book, Olio. His previous book is Lead Belly, and uh, he is a poetry and fiction editor for the African American Review and is associate professor of English at the College of Staten Island. Uh, Olio um, looks at African American performers uh, around the Civil War and then up to uh, World War One. And it's an effort to understand how they met, resisted, complicated, co-opted, sometimes defeated attempts to minstrelize them. I want to talk about that. Um, so, the, so the minstrel show is the pre- predominant entertainment form in in the period that we're talking about. And uh, a subtext, or I guess not very subtext, was reinforcing white supremacy, as we've uh, talked about. Uh, there were black performers in these minstrel shows, right? So they, they had to deal with a whole host of issues. Yeah, I'm going to say one, one quick note. I'm no longer editor of the African American Review. I have okay. for a minute, but I just want to get that out the way. Okay, great. Um, but uh, there, are, there, there were black performers in the minstrel show that came in later, in later on in the 19th century. Two of the most prominent were Burt Williams and George Walker. There are poems about them in the book, and they they do the same. Their their poem does 
many of the same things of, of the poem that I was describing uh, previously. That, in other words, it comes out of the book and it and it twists into different forms. But it's in order to uh, it's in order to illustrate the way that they were able to, to, you know, if you were if you were black and you had a funny bone back in the 19th century, and you and you wanted to uh, and you wanted to practice your craft, there was pretty much no other way that you were going to be able to do so outside of the minstrel show. And Burt Williams and George Walker, born in the 1870s, uh, wanted to exercise their wit and their craft, and they did so through through the minstrel show. They they put on the makeup the whole nine yards. However, they were... They became very famous in their act. Um, they were famous for not just making the audience laugh at caricature. They were able to develop character by making the audience uh, both laugh and cry along with them. W.C. Field said that uh, it was the only act that could make him laugh and cry. So they were. Uh, they were. They were. Take, they were entering this field of the, of minstrelsy, which which was uh, which demanded of them to uh, present a flat depiction of black folks, and they were able to come out of it and and uh, and sponsor and create some of the very first independent African American theatrical productions with full, more fully developed characters. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So they were they were going from one paradigm and stretching that paradigm in order to create another paradigm for themselves were these um, were they performing for white audiences um yes uh, many times it was for white audiences mm-hmm. but they also performed for black audiences. okay uh so i'm you'd have you know you'd have that challenge right the white audience is probably coming to uh, wanting to see the characters the stereotypes Sorry, uh, so that. so the the white audiences presumably would be wanting to come and see a, a regular minstrel show to see the stereotypes and the characters, and then uh, Bert Williams and George Walker would their challenge would be to I guess start there and then expand that to to the character. Yes, yes, as, yes. As a matter of fact, you know, I mean, uh, you know, I think it's I think it's um it's it's hard to imagine from a twenty first century perspective. Uh, what they what they were able to do, but I, I will say that from from reading closely about their act, um, I believe that there was a certain degree of a wink, a sly wink involved in their performance, that, a kind of breaking the fourth wall of their performance beyond the beyond the the cork and the and the costume that uh, that that brought themselves and the audience beyond. The caricature of the minstrel show, and they were they were able to employ that and and make it and make it really work for them, and and ordered and and got them beyond the minstrel show. Now, I mean, there's one there's one I think if you, there's one jazz standard that was written by Burt Williams it's called Nobody, and uh, he used to sing it every time he went on this on the stage, and I think proof of his. You know, nobody is a, is a song is a song that's about <laughs> about uh, the bewowed individual, someone who's 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 feels you know downtrodden and low, and uh, he won't do nothing for nobody because don't nobody do nothing for him. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, but it became a very 
famous song, and it's still a jazz standard today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In fact, yeah. You can yeah. Find, if you go on YouTube, you can find Cecile McClure and Savant singing it. Nina Simone sang it. Perry Como sang it. You know, everybody was singing that song all the way through the 20th and the 21st century. I mean, I think that's 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 an I think that's an example of the kind of intelligence in their wit and their and in their act that allowed them to go beyond the buffoonish and into the development of character. Mm. By the way, you said they did the whole thing. They put on the makeup. Is it including? Yeah. Did they put on blackface? Yes, they did. They, yeah. That, so that's they, there's required. a whole whole host of issues there, right? Required. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It was required. It was required. So uh, even though they were black, they they put on the the blackface, uh, that kind of that yeah. mask, right? That mistral mask. Yes. Yes. It was about. There's a lot. You know. There's a lot about the mask, and and there's about there's it's about. You know, masking oneself, masking one's true intentions, masking in, in order to uh, survive, et cetera, et cetera. That uh, that is in the book. It is in Olio. This is this. It's about the you know the menstrual pose, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what? Uh, so Olio. What does that refer to? It's the title of the book. Good question. Excellent question. Olio is spelled O L I O. That's O L I O. And oleo means a mix of ingredients that come together to form a meal. And in the context of American theater, the oleo was a mix of acts that come together to form the middle part of a minstrel show. So you could have a juggler, a singer, a contortionist, a comedian, you know, a piano player, you know, some dancers. It was a it was a variety show, really. So the the Oleo was the middle part of the minstrel show. There was a variety show, and um, and later on, towards the towards the twentieth century, the minstrel show kind of started to die off, so to speak. But the Oleo kind of was part of what transformed into what we know as vaudeville. Now, in the, in, in the context of the book, Oleo. There is a mix of acts. In other words, there's Burt Williams and George Walker in the book. Uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar uh, is in the book, of course. As he was a, he was he he, he was one of the first poets, black poets, to make his living going around performing his work. Uh, there's um, uh, the Fisk Jubilee Singers, which, if you have ever heard a spiritual in your life, if you ever heard a Negro spiritual in your life, that Negro spiritual owes a debt to the Fisk Jubilee Singers, that's basically college kids right after the Civil War, ex-slaves, who sang to themselves in their cabins after classes, and then eventually toured around the country to, to create the building fund for Fisk University. Um, there's uh, Sissy Reddy Jones, who was the first uh, black person to sing at Carnegie Hall, before it was really Carnegie Hall in 1892. There's uh, Blind Tom. Blind Tom was a uh, autistic and uh, that's a u t i s t i c autistic and blind uh, piano player who was owned by the same family throughout his entire life. He was born in 1849. Uh, he was owned by a family called the Bethune family in Georgia. They uh, after the Civil War, well, well before the Civil War, they started kind of 
they, they, they found it. They found out that he had a phonographic memory, so he could repeat anything that he heard, especially on piano. And they more or less used that in order to create a career for him, or really that they that they gained from. So they made about a million dollars. A million dollars. Wow. A million dollars off of his career during his lifetime. So um, he 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 died in the early 1900s. There's the McCoy twins. The McCoy twins were Pygophagus twins. That's, that means they were essentially joined through the torso and uh, and through uh, the uh, um, through the pelvis. They were born into slavery, uh, also in 1849, and their owner rented them out to a freak show when they were about 14 months old or so. A traveling freak show. And uh, they traveled with this freak show throughout, and they were uh, sub- subject to the whims of the freak show essentially throughout their youth until uh, until after the uh, Civil War. And at that point, they um, they joined freak shows of their own volition, and uh, and they traveled the world and became very famous. They were they played instruments, they spoke multiple languages, they sang duets, they danced together, you know, the whole nine yards. So they were very famous. And with the money that they gained from their performances, they bought the plantation upon which they had been slaves. So that's the McCoy twins. There's also uh, um, Edmonia Lewis, also known as Wildfire. Uh, Edmonia Lewis was probably the most successful African-American visual artist of the 19th century. She was a sculptor. She was, uh, she was Native American and black, born in upstate New York. Um, eventually, she attended Oberlin College, at which she, during which time she had a really negative incident, uh, and she, uh, she survived this incident in which she was accused of poisoning some, uh, some of her fellow white girl students. And uh, she was acquitted of that of that uh, charge. And then later on, she really basically at around the age of twenty, she left the United States and went to Rome and became a sculptor and a very famous sculptor with fifty thousand dollar commissions in the eighteen seventies and the eighteen eighties. Did bust the presidents and the whole nine yards. It's very famous. Um, <laughs> who else is in the book? There's Henry Box Brown. Henry Box Brown put himself, was a slave in Virginia. Uh, At a certain point, his master sold his entire family down river. That's a wife and about, I think he had two or three other children. And at that point, he decided he was going to escape. The way he escaped was he put himself in a box, about two and a half feet by three feet by two feet, and had himself shipped to Philadelphia. When he got to Philadelphia, he came out the box literally singing, um, and that was in 1849. A lot, a lot of things happened in 1849 <laughs> in this book. But and then and then in in any state, he was he published his his uh, his slave narrative, his slave escape narrative, and he became a target. In 1851, the Fugitive Slave Act was passed, which meant that any white folks could come north of the Mason-Dixon line and just drag black people back into slavery physically accosted on the street. He beat them off. Pretty much the next week, he was on a boat to England, where slavery had been abolished. 
And there, he became he began his performance career, where he reenacted the Atlantic slave trade and culminated it in his own uh, manumission, in his, in his own abolition, so to speak. And then after the Civil War, he became a mesmerist. <laughs> so, uh, who else is in the book? Uh, there's Blind Boom. Blind Boom was a piano player. Uh, now, Blind Boom was born in 1865, directly after the Civil War, in the state of Missouri. And he uh, caught encephalitis at the age of six months. There's no penicillin, no antibiotics. Encephalitis means your brain will swell because it's on fire with a fever. It will swell until you die. The only remedy the surgeon had was removal of the eyes mm. in order to relieve the pressure on his brain. So he was thus blind at the age of six months. However, he also had a phonographic memory, and he became a very famous piano player uh, that lived, I want to say, until 1927 or so in the state of Missouri. Of course, there's Scott Joplin in the book. He was, he's the king of ragtime. Uh, and he was, um, he was born in, um, he was born somewhere between around Texas and Arkansas, Arkansas, Texarkana, he was born, but he he made his fame in Sedalia, Missouri, and he became a a, a ragtime practitioner, a ragtime, a doctor of piano, and then he eventually moved to New York and began, began, he just had a, you know, whenever you hear ragtime, you're probably listening to Scott Joplin. And, and ragtime is the very beginning of what we know as jazz. Hmm. It's interesting. So, uh, I was... Um uh, I was reading an interview uh, you gave, and the, the question was uh, about your research and uh, how you. And I, <laughs> this was a very uh, interesting anecdote that stood out to me. Um, Eileen Southern's book, "The Music of Black Americans," I had not a uh, history. I had not been familiar with that, um, and and she she tells about why she dived uh, or dove into that. Yes, she dove into it because a professor said there was no history of black music. <laughs> And, and that there was nothing to research. So Eileen Southern, I'm glad you brought her up. Now, in the back of the book, there is a bibliography. And Eileen Southern's book is listed in that bibliography because I want people to go for themselves and check out the stories in these fantastic books, really, that are written about these people in, the, in, that, in, in Olio. So uh, I, I, Eileen Southern was a primary source. and She, was, she, was, she gave a great... You know, it's, it's just a great long history of the of the immense depth of black music in uh, in uh, in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think one thing that I think about when I or thought about when I was writing this book is that during the time that these people were developing this music, I'm talking to, from right after the Civil War, you have to remember these are folks, you know, particularly singers, you know. Uh, this, this is the first generation of free African Americans after many generations of slavery. With the, with the first opportunity to, say, sing the song that they want to sing, to, to play the instrument that they want to play, not for a master's edification, but for their own edification, for the edification of themselves and their family and their people. Using the instrument, have, imagine having a piano in 
in the house. It was a great, you know, symbol of, of fortitude and wealth. So, you know, being able to, uh, to master the piano and, and mastering instruments that white folks said you, you, should, you don't have the intellectual capacity to master. You know, mastering every instrument, not, even, not only mastering the instruments, but doubling down on them and creating new forms like ragtime, like blues, like spirituals. Not in, 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 in having this sound, right, that, that if you step back into the years of slavery, taking this sound, which was really the only possession that was truly yours, because you didn't own your own skin. You didn't own your own sons or daughters. You didn't own your mother and father. You know, you didn't, you didn't own the clothes on your back. You didn't own um, um, a plot of land. You didn't own anything. But the one thing that you could lay, lay claim to that nobody could take away from you was the sound that came out of you. And it's a, it's a sound not, that not only edified you, but entranced even those who enslaved you. So taking that sound after the Civil War, taking that sound and, and hitching it to these instruments, which you have for the first time have access to, and creating this sound that has a knowledge of this deprivation from the years of slavery, hitching that sound that tells the story of a country, and bringing it into these instruments, and, and creating really all the music that you hear today. All the music that we hear today, from, from hip-hop to R&B, all of it, all of the American sound starts with blues, gospel, um, uh, ragtime, spirituals. That's where it starts. And we, when we walk around today, it's almost impossible. I, I just came back from Amsterdam. And every time I walked down the street, it, it was, it was, there was black, the sound of black music flooding out of every crevice in that town. So right now, it's, it's impossible to even imagine going through the world without hearing black music, from blues to rock to, uh, to R&B to whatever it is, to hip-hop, whatever it is you want to talk about. So let's, uh, that's let's, what these people were doing. That's what yes. they were busy constructing. They were, they were busy, busy constructing the, uh, the, um, the intellectual property of music that we celebrate today, the intellect, the, the DNA of the music that we are, that we celebrate today. Yeah, yeah, dir- direct, by direct connection. Uh, let's take another break. When we come back, final segment with Taimba Jess, winner of the 2017 Pulitzer Prize for Poetry for his book, Olio. That's what we're talking about here. And uh, we'll have our final segment following this break. Franz Schubert wrote this piano piece, but it's so difficult and demanding, even he couldn't play it. Coming up, a virtuosic performance of The Wanderer Fantasy by Schubert, pianist Juho Pohjanen in concert at the Music at Menlo Festival on the next Performance Today from APM. Tonight at 9 o'clock on Utah Public Radio.
Are you looking for a way to make your nonprofit organization more visible to our statewide community? Utah Public Radio's community calendar highlights events across the state. Musical performances, festivals, live theater, art shows, dance, educational or guest lectures, workshops, volunteer opportunities, and everything else. Go online to our user-friendly submission page at upr.org, click on the community calendar link, and review the submission guidelines. Everyone has a favorite author, actor, musician, or comedian. At All Things Considered, we don't just bring you the news of the day. We introduce you to the coolest people you thought you knew and learn what really makes them tick. What you hear might just surprise you. Join us every afternoon for All Things Considered from NPR News, conversations that connect. Join us for NPR's All Things Considered weekday afternoons at 3 here on Utah Public Radio. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in February of this year. This program is part of the Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative, administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils in partnership with the Pulitzer Prizes Board for a collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and the Salt Lake City Library. The initiative seeks to deepen the public's knowledge and appreciation of the vital connections between democracy, the humanities, journalism, and an informed citizenry. The Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative is supported by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Taimba Jess. Uh, he's author of the Pulitzer Prize winning uh, book of poetry called Oligo. And uh, we have uh, another uh, about uh, six or seven uh, minutes left with uh, Taimba Jess. Pleasure to have him on the program uh, today. Taimba Jess, I was, uh, I was referring earlier to uh, a couple of interviews that I read. Uh, this struck me. You were responding to a question. I just want to quote you here. You said, while going through draft after draft of the sonnets, I was haunted by the quality of hope I felt uh, through them, despite the many agonizing circumstances of each ex-slave's tale. A good haunting, yes, one uninformed by a body-felt level of tragedy. You say, finally, in the year before publication, it occurred to me that the body of the black church is subject to another very American tradition, arson. And uh, there's a list in, in the book of, of arsons of, of black churches, which is, which is um, very striking. Yes. There's a, uh, heroic crown of sonnets that goes throughout the book. And the, and the crown of sonnets is in the voices, the collective and individual voices of, of the first nine members of the Fisk Jubilee choir. Um, that, that, uh, crown of sonnets was constructed really at the beginning of the, of the, of writing the book, um, and uh, it, it, I, I liked the sonnets. Um, I thought they were good sonnets, but they were, they, there was, I, they seemed to be missing something. And what I realized at a certain point was that um, they were missing the other story of the fire that they had been through, that had tempered their, uh, their faith. And that is the arson of black churches throughout the history of the United States. And so I, I decided to look up as many uh, names of churches. I think this, this is informed by the Black Lives Matter movement. In other words, one of, one, of the, uh, one of the slogans, so to speak, of the Black Lives Mo- Mo- Matter movement was, say their names, that they may be remembered. Say their names. 
say their names. Who are they? Say their names. But what occurred to me is I did not know the names of black churches that had been burnt down, historically. So I threaded a, a chronological list, which, which might be the longest historical list of black churches burnt in the United States. There's 148 churches listed. That's 148 con- congregations, one of which is listed twice. And uh, uh, that church is Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, which was attacked just before this book essentially was turned in, the final draft was turned in. A man walked in that church in 2015, prayed with the people for an hour, and then blew them to pieces. And as a result, that became the last church listed in this chronological list. When I looked at the history of the church, it turned out that in 1822, Denmark Vesey had staged a slave revolt in that town. And after that slave revolt was thwarted, the populace decided to burn that church to the ground. And thus, AME Church became the first and the last home listed in that long and fiery, terrible list. Yeah, that's extraordinary. Uh, we're coming, we have about uh, two or three minutes left. I wonder, uh, it'd be appropriate for maybe to hear a, a, a poem. Is, is there a, a short poem that uh, that you could uh, read for us? Well, since we're, uh, since we're, we were just talking about the churches, I will read, I will, why don't I read the Fist Jubilee Proclamation, okay? Okay, Which yes. is uh, really the first poem in the book. And uh, I hope I have enough time to read this. It's a sonnet, and it's dedicated to Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, 1822, and several other churches that are listed above and below this sonnet. The Fisk Jubilee Proclamation. The epigraph comes from Psalm 96, which says, Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. Oh, sing. Undo the world with blue song born from newly free throats. Sprung loose from lungs once bound within bonded skin. Scored from dawn to dusk with coffle and lash. Every tongue unfurled as the body's flag. Every breath conjured, despite loss we've had. Bear witness to the birthing of our hymn from story depths of America's sin. Soul-worn psalms, blessed in our blood through dark lessons of the past, struggling to be heard. Behold, the bold sound we found in ourselves that was hidden, cast out of the garden of freedom. It's loud and unbeaten. Then, soft as a newborn's face, each note bursting loose from human bondage. A wonderful Fisk Jubilee proclamation from Olio. That's uh, Taimba Jess. Uh, Olio won the 2017 uh, Pulitzer Prize for Poetry. Previous book is uh, Lead Belly. 
Um, so, uh, Tanya Jess, uh, just a minute left. What? Um, it's always awkward, you know. You talk about the the current book, but uh, <laughs> what are you doing next? <laughs> but uh, what's what, what are you working on? Well, I, I have my eyes on uh, more uh, more tales from the past. I'm, I'm pretty much a storyteller. I just happen to use poetry as my vehicle to tell stories. But there are many, many, many stories, especially about black folks from the past that I'm interested in, especially around the area, era of the 19th century. And I just need to get my, myself hustling and get myself on the page and make these things happen. Well, uh, we appreciate the conversation very much, and you can find out a lot more about Taima Jess at his website, uh, which is uh, taimajess.net. Uh, Time, yes. Jess, uh, welcome, uh, or thank you so much for uh, being with us for the hour. It's uh, been a pleasure. Thank you, Utah, for listening, and uh, I bid you a good day. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our, by our members and Utah Humanities, improving communities through ideas in action. Online at utahhumanities.org. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, and also heard at upr.org.